Please rise for the reading of God's Word from the 11th chapter of Acts. Begin reading in verse 1 and read through verse 18. Hear now God's Word. Now the apostles and the brethren who were in Judea heard the Gentiles had also received the Word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went in to to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, "No, uh, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, Uh, as upon us at the beginning. And then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said. So we're working our way through the book of Acts, which is the story of the young church that is uh, coming together and then beginning to now be sent out. It had a lot of growing to do. A lot of growing in numbers is taking place. Thousands are being converted to Christ. They also had a lot of growing and understanding to do. They couldn't really imagine what God was about to do in the world. They had no idea that we and millions of others would be the fruit of their labors and prayers. And neither can we imagine what God is yet to do with our labor and prayers. God is always bigger than we can imagine. The work of the church, like most things that God calls us to, is harder, much harder than we think. Sacrifice, persecution, even martyrdom, and much more. But God is so powerful that he even takes those things, he takes every form of opposition, and he turns it for good, and he uses it for his own glory. Not even the cross could thwart his plans. So we'll take up the story where we left last time. News of the events at Cornelius' house rapidly made its way back to Judea and to Jerusalem. 
But not everyone was pleased with what they heard. We read that those of the circumcision contended with Peter. They're going to challenge Peter. They're not happy with what Peter has done. Peter was going to be called to give an account of his own behavior. The fact that he had gone into the house of a Gentile. Centuries of Jewish tradition were entrenched in the minds of the mostly Jewish Christian church. At this point, in fact, I think this event is ultimately going to lead to uh, a separation of what at this point is kind of a Christian sect within Judaism. But when the Gentiles are brought in, there's going to be a dividing line, a new dividing line created, and we're going to begin to see the Christian church and uh, the temple begin to separate. But that's, that will develop as we go further through the book of Acts. But centuries of Jewish tradition entrenched in the minds of these mostly Jewish Christians uh, was the problem. Apparently, many of them had already forgotten what God had spoken to Abraham in Genesis 12, which said, "In you, and in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So this was not some brand new program that the apostles are presenting. This was the plan from the beginning. Actually, we could go back to Genesis. Is really the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 3. Uh, But here, very explicitly to Abraham, Abraham, through you and through your descendants, I intend to bless the whole world. God had always intended for Israel to be the conduit through which the message of salvation would go out to the whole world. It was true that Jerusalem had always kind of been the center of orthodoxy, but God was about to shake things up. Peter and many of the believing Jews held traditional understandings of things, some of which had actually developed from a misunderstanding of Scripture. But at this point, these things had become entrenched. And so God had begun to shake uh, the shake-up, actually, with Peter himself, as he had revealed to him by several means, that is, the mission of the church was much bigger and broader than Peter had even imagined. So Peter is going to recount now, as he's called to account before the church in Jerusalem, he's going to recount what had transpired in Caesarea, which we already read about in chapter 10, but now this is going to be repeated. First, Peter says in verses 4 through 10, there was a divine vision of the sheet that descended from heaven with beasts and reptiles, uh, creeping things, and birds. Peter emphasized in verse 6 that I observed it intently. He was studying this. And then he said he heard God's word, which ordered him to rise, Peter, kill, and eat. A direct command. And his initial reaction was to protest... But that protest was rebuked when he was told, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Basically, Peter, you don't get to make the rules, I do. And the triune God repeated this whole thing three times to make sure that Peter didn't miss the point. Apparently, he did get it, because you'll recall what Peter told Cornelius in chapter 10, verse 28. He said, God has shown me that I should not call any man common 
are unclean. And we discussed how racial bigotry and bias and ethnic bigotry and all of that, God was tearing down this wall, this separation that's caused by sin and selfishness and pride. God is showing Peter, he's showing the world, and now he's going to show the church that we should not call any man common or unclean. Second, there came a divine command, verses 11 and 12, telling Peter that he was to accompany the three men who had come from Caesarea. The knock came at the door at that very moment as he's having finishing up these, this sequence of three repeated visions. The knock comes at the door. Three men stood before the house where I was, Peter said. More divine revelation instructed Peter. Verse 12, Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. In other words, believe these men. Believe what they tell you. Go with them. Third, God was preparing things, or he was setting the scene on the other end at, with the, at the house of Cornelius. Verses 13 and 14, Cornelius told Peter and his companions how he had seen a, a vision, an angel standing in his house, who said to him, send to Joppa uh, and uh, call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And then fourth, so again, we're emphasizing how God is showing Peter uh, about this change, if you will. God reveals uh, what he was going to do to Peter, uh, uh, what he was doing to Peter in verse 15 through 17. While he was still delivering his sermon at Cornelius's house, he said to him, um, Excuse me, through, while he's delivering a sermon, he shows him through the active work of the Holy Spirit, which was poured out on the folks who were assembled. And remember, it was quite a group of people. Cornelius had, you not only had the men that were traveling, the six of them, but you also had Cornelius's family and friends that he had gathered. And Cornelius, the centurion, had a big household. And so we don't know the number of people, but it might have been 30 people or, or more. And so while he's preaching, we see the active work of the Holy Spirit poured out on the folks assembled in the house of Cornelius, including the same gift of foreign languages, tongues, just as it had happened on in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost with the Jews. And Peter, he said, uh, he then said, uh, he remembered the words of the Lord, of Jesus, how he said in, uh, in verse 16, each recounting this. John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So this was what Peter's saying, the Gentile version of Pentecost. Peter was convinced that this marked a dramatic change going forward. God was indeed welcoming believing Gentiles into his family on an equal footing with believing Jews And Peter concluded his presentation with this rhetorical question, If therefore God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to withstand God? I was thinking about Job after God questions Job. Remember Job said, God, I've got questions for you. And God says, well, why don't you have a seat? I've got some questions for you first. 
And that sequence of questions ends with Job putting his hand over his mouth. Essentially, that's what Peter is saying here. Am I supposed to question what God's doing? God made it abundantly clear, repeatedly clear, through a number of means. And the answer was obvious, and as a result, the Jerusalem church, at least for the time being, replied first with silence. There was just a a long pregnant pause after Peter finished. What can you say? And then, with an acknowledgement, it says, they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Racial and ethnic strife, though, dies hard. Progress usually comes, when it comes, in waves. And we'll see that this isn't the last time that concern about the Gentiles in the church is raised. In Acts 15, for example, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, these were Christians, rose up saying, is it necessary to circumcise them? Uh, Excuse me, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. We said, well, maybe we'll let them in, but they need to become Jews first. Then we'll let them in. So that becomes the big controversy at the council and uh, we read about in Acts 15. By the end of this section of text in Acts 11, Luke has recounted the story of Cornelius four times. He does the same thing with the story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. These are the central stories in the development of the story of the church and the spread of the gospel. You remember in Ephesians, Paul will write about this in Ephesians 2, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time, so think about this as the time before uh, Peter goes to preach to Cornelius, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were Far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, that is Jesus, who has made both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. And let me just paraphrase that and say he's speaking here about what we would call the ceremonial law. All the the laws of the priesthood, and the animal sacrifices, all those things that were designed to teach Israel about the work of Christ, all of that has gone away now. That was what was keeping a wall of separation there. But all of that's gone away so as to create in himself, that is in Jesus, one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, the conflict. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. That's the Gentiles and the Jews. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So at this point, due to the completed work of Christ, 
the entire ceremonial law had become, or at least was becoming, obsolete. God says in Hebrews 8, 13, a new covenant, he has made, that means he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now God is going to allow a certain transition period in that first century, uh, particularly regarding the custom of circumcision. So Jewish families who are Christians, it was, he says, they said, here's how we're going to resolve this. If you're Jewish and that's been your tradition, you can continue to do that, but you may not require that of the Gentiles. Because baptism is replacing circumcision, but there's a, a, a condescension, if you will, of God allowing for a certain period of years for a transition to take place. We're going to see this come to a screeching halt in 70 A.D. when the temple is taken down to the ground and the whole system is destroyed. But at this point, this is what's going on. So now that uh, the Old Testament, you see, was a system foreshadowing the work of Christ, all the sacrifices pointed to Christ, the priesthood pointed to Christ, the tabernacle and the temple pointed to Christ, now that he was here and risen from the dead, the old things had passed away and everything had become new. It'll become clear and final after 70 A.D. with the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the priesthood and the destruction of the sacrificial system. Jesus is now our high priest. Jesus is our tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God, the eternal sacrifice. Galatians 3, 21 through 25 It is the law, and again, I believe this is a reference to the ceremonial law, uh, not the Ten Commandments per se. Uh, It is the law then, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. In other words, if we could have kept all this system and followed all these practices and done it just right, If that would have given us all we needed, then that was all we needed, right? But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law, and again, I think it's the ceremonial law, was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, after Jesus has come, we're no longer under the tutor. We used to be in kindergarten, in elementary school, but now we've graduated. We have Christ. We're out of that school. We don't want to go back to that elementary thing. In fact, because we are united to Christ, we have become the temples of the Holy Spirit. We have become a royal priesthood, and we have become living sacrifices. Now, I'm going to shift gears a little bit here just to draw out a few other things from this text. Note the similar language regarding the reception of God's Word. As we think about what is it that makes someone a Christian, how does someone become a Christian? Well, we see a pattern here in Acts 11.1. 1, it says, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also 
received the word of God. In Acts chapter 8, verse 14, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. So the Samaritans came the same way. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, when Peter is preaching, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added. And so Luke is clear that to believe in Jesus Christ, one must first receive the word of God. That's the starting place. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The evidence that that word was received is real repentance. The first recorded words of both John the Baptist and Jesus were about the urgent need for repentance. Repentance was also central in Peter's message throughout the book of Acts. And the Apostle Paul will also take up that same message in Acts and in other places. The Westminster Shorter Catechism summarizes the, the importance of repentance this way. Question 85. What does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? And the answer, to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. What is repentance to life? Question 87. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. It's a change of direction, change of mind, a change of heart, change of direction. Repentance first requires a recognition of our offense against God. And this is more than just a feeling of, uh, a feeling of guilt. It is an awareness and recognition that we are morally culpable and legally culpable for breaking God's law. We are criminals in God's universe. Second, repentance requires a turning away from sin toward God. This happens in the context of God's gracious offer of mercy in the gospel. That's why it's good news. It's the fundamental change of direction. This is what we often call conversion. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter was clear that what the Gentiles received was grace. And this is what Barnabas will verify in just in the next view. When we look next time, Barnabas is going to be sent to Caesarea to verify Peter's story. And here's what we're going to read in Acts 11:23. When he came, Barnabas, and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. Of course, added to this gracious gift of repentance is the gift of faith. I think that's what it means to receive the word. They believed what they were told. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. In all these cases, after believing and receiving the word and repentance, baptism followed 
as the public sign and sacrament of being in Christ or being in the body of Christ, being in the church. The church is not an addendum. That's what we are saved into. Christ died for the church. He purchased the church with his own blood. And as I'm attached to the body of Christ, that's where salvation comes. That's how Christ worked. He died for the church. Again, Westminster Shorter Catechism, in answer to the question 94, what is baptism? Baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost does signify and seal our engrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's. By the way, a sacrament is uh, an oath, uh, like it's a loyalty or fealty oath. Like someone who's sworn in into the military takes that oath of loyalty or fealty. In this whole story of Cornelius and Peter, the church at Jerusalem and the church at Jerusalem, God was laying out his plan for what he intended to do throughout the rest of history. He would bring men and women from every race, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, from the four corners of the earth, like the animals on that sheet, He would bring them to faith in Jesus Christ by preaching of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit. The implications for us are to carry us and for that early church was to carry this mission worldwide. Jesus had said that the first disciples would in fact be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And you know what that means for us? That means that we should be witnesses in Nacogdoches, in Houston, in Dallas, in Austin, and Uzbekistan, and to the ends of the earth. All the dividing distinctions of race, ethnicity, and nationality have been set aside in Christ And the only distinction now is between faith and unbelief. The local church is like what I have said about marriages and children and families. Yes, it's your wedding or your marriage and your children and your family, but it doesn't stop there. You and your family are part of something bigger than yourselves. And the local church... In this case, Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church is part of something bigger than ourselves. We know that all the lost people in the world need the gospel. We know that generally we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel, but in the final analysis, we must go to some particular place and preach to some particular people at some particular time. And God himself is the chief strategist. You and I have been born to live in this time, in this place, to do this work now. God's original purpose for the world was that it was to be an expansion of his eternal loving communion, the loving communion of the Trinity. Man and woman created in the image of God were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with more God-glorifying images, expanding that loving community and communion but sin spoiled the plan, destroying the communion, 
and separating man from God and separating man from man. And this separation is enmity and death. And God sent his son to address that central problem. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That is the gospel. The good news. This is the mission, and it's the same mission that remains with us today. The day of Pentecost marked the beginning of the worldwide expansion of that mission that had been in Israel and now from Jerusalem would reach to the ends of the earth. Every local church is a mission work. It is an outpost of the kingdom of God, baptizing and making disciples of the nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever Christ has commanded. And like the original creation mandate, the church is to multiply and fill the earth with God glorifiers. The mission is to expand the loving communion to the saints of every race, tribe, tongue, and nation. As local churches or missions are established like any growing family, we then look to expand to reach out further and further spreading the good news. And we do this many ways. With the birth of children, with the preaching and teaching which equips the saints for ministry, with the publication and distribution of literature and audio, with ministries of good works in our communities, with schools and hospitals and shelters. Every day and in every place, the mission work of the local church reaches out with the gospel of Christ. And then we look over the horizon. And we realize that there are many places beyond our local direct reach that also need the good news. Not only do our local churches engage in this ongoing mission work, but so does the broader church. We're connected with other churches. God is directing his people throughout the world and throughout history to bring light to all the nations. And so in his kind providence, he opens doors and opportunities that we could never accomplish on our own. The broader church is bigger than the sum total of our local churches. And so we come together to send out evangelists or missionaries to faraway places to reach people unknown to us but not unknown to God. Our commander-in-chief assembles coalitions of his people to accomplish his purposes in calling out his elect. He does this in a variety of ways. He's the creator of the universe, and he's not going to be restricted by us. And thus, throughout the years, he's employed a variety of means and people to call his people and to build his holy temple. Not one stone will be missing. When the Father said to the Son in Psalm 2, Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So that's what the Father says to the Son in Psalm 2. Ask of me and I'll give you the nation. Do you think Jesus forgot to ask? 
And Jehovah promised, saying in Habakkuk 2.14, For the ends of the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In fact, the beaches have, by and large, all been stormed, and now we're bringing in the occupying forces. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. If you're waiting for CNN or Fox News to report that to you, then give it up. God's reported that to you. You can bank on that. There's stuff going on you don't know anything about every day, all the time, in thousands of places. And it's been going on. And that's why you and I are here, because it's been going on. I want to remind you of how God brought Pastor Oleg Volkov into our lives and how that relationship providentially turned into an opportunity to help establish a new outpost of the kingdom of God in the unlikely place of Uzbekistan. God has taken a disparate group of small churches and individuals and used our limited resources to accomplish an amazing work that will have implications for generations. He takes your prayers and financial gifts and relationships and skills and locations and opportunities and labor, the labors of his people, and he combines them to transform individuals, to establish churches, and to change the world. A small group of churches in Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, Missouri, and California, along with one small church in St. Petersburg, Russia, have penetrated a dominant Muslim country, Uzbekistan, and established a church, seeing many new converts to Christ, and now have begun training men in the Bible. In fact, starting tomorrow, we prayed for it a moment ago, uh, Pastor Volkov will start another. I've lost count of how many. It's been going on for a few years. He does two or three of these a year. Sometimes he travels there when he can, uh, and sometimes they, they're doing them online. But he's going to start Monday another training ses- session with the men of the Uzbek church as they work through the book of Ephesians. And, it, and it's amazing that we are currently able to help with the finances for this young church to build a building in Uzbekistan. That would have been unthought of even five years ago. Some of you may have seen the video I sent out, just about 30 seconds worth of them putting in the the well. Out there digging and doing that work. And that couldn't be done if you weren't part of that. That's God's work. We by the grace of God, have been able to provide transportation, teachers, Bibles, and other resources. All the parts of this coalition are necessary. And together we've united to advance the kingdom of God. And this is just one story. There are countless stories like this of what God has done through history and is doing today. The rest of the book of Acts will recount the missionary work of the church. You talk about what would appear to be sweeping water uphill. 
Just going, you imagine just getting on a boat and going someplace that has never heard the gospel at all and setting foot on that ground and starting. And we've, we've had a lot of plow work done for us. Jesus had told his disciples that before the temple was destroyed, 70 A.D., this is Matthew 24. Remember when he and his disciples had come out of seeing the temple? And this is a phenomenal, phenomenal building. And they're asking about it. And Jesus said this, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. What end was he talking about? Because he just talked about the temple being destroyed. So by 70 A.D., Jesus says the gospel had essentially been preached to the world. And that began on the day of Pentecost when all the men who had gathered there for Pentecost heard the gospel in their own native languages and then took it back with them to their countries. It expands again with Cornelius. And the ripple effects of that day are still being felt throughout the world. Right now, today, let's pray. Gracious Lord, your eternal plan to redeem your people is glorious in every way. Your gift of faith, repentance, and forgiveness is beyond measure, and thus our praise will be eternal. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your enabling work in us to will and to do your good pleasure. And we adore you, our Lord Jesus Christ, for your eternal love and sacrifice for us. We give thanks to our triune God for the extent of the gospel to all the world, to every tribe and nation without partiality. Grant us, Lord, boldness to speak the gospel to every sinner. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Pastor John Stott commented on our Acts 11 passage, and he said, Luke has now recounted the conversion of Saul and Cornelius. The differences between these two men were considerable. In race, Saul was a Jew, Cornelius a Gentile. In culture, Saul was a scholar, Cornelius a soldier. In religion, Saul was a bigot, Cornelius a seeker. Yet both were converted by the gracious initiative of God. Both received forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit. And both were baptized and welcomed into the Christian family on equal terms. This fact is a signal testimony to the power and impartiality of the gospel of Christ, which is still the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then for the Gentile. And so I want to point out to you, to us, that as we have assembled here today, the congregation of the Lord, that we too represent the scope of God's saving grace. All kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds, the same grace that Cornelius and his house experienced, we have also felt. And as we now gather around the Lord's table, chosen in him before the foundation of the world, whose names were written in the book of life, uh, the book of the, la- uh, of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, this is no accident. We have been united to him, and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Amen. Amen. Almighty God, who spoke to the prophets that they might make your will and purpose known.
Bless your church, the pillar and ground of the truth, the guardian of your word. Conform our minds to yours, and may our lips speak your truth. Take our hearts and kindle them with love for you. Manifest that same love in us as we love one another. What we do not know, teach us. What we do not have, give us. What we are not, make us. For Jesus Christ's sake. Grant us, Lord, that from the written word and by our spoken word, men and women may come to see the incarnate word through the power of the Holy Spirit. Bless now our rest, our feast, and our fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.